welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on March 5th. to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the God of peace and comfort. Give us your spirit to direct and lead us to all truth through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the opening pages of Milton's Paradise Lost, the rebellious angels say this, To do good never will be our task, but ever to do ill our soul delight as being contrary to his high will when we resist. The Pharisees could find these same words in their mouth because by opposing Jesus Christ, they are acting contrary to the high will of the Most High God and they are resisting the Lord's Messiah. That's what this parable is about. But this parable spans from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It recounts how God sent the prophets to Israel, how Israel rejected the message of the prophets, and how God then sent His Son. But the Pharisees reject and crucify the Son, which earns them destruction and displacement. And so the meaning of this parable spans from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It covers a lot of ground. And so, you have to look at this parable from several different perspectives to grasp the full meaning. So the first perspective to look at this parable is to see Jesus' use of parables. You see, this is the parable that gets Jesus killed. 
Notice what it says in verse 12. After he said the parable, it says, They perceived that he had told the parable against them. And that's really interesting. Because in Mark chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus says that he tells parables to conceal things. In particular, to conceal things from the Pharisees. And so the pattern throughout the Gospels is that Jesus tells parables in public, but then gives explanations to the disciples in private. But now, in Mark chapter 12, now in the parable of the vineyard, Jesus tells a parable in such a way that the, that the Pharisees can immediately understand what he just said. So this parable is something of a reversal of Jesus' pattern that he'd established for three years. So why? Why all of a sudden does Jesus change how he tells parables? Why does Jesus spend three years telling stories designed to conceal the meaning and now tell this story, which is easy to understand, which triggers plans for his assassination? Well, the reason is because the use of parables is designed to keep Jesus from being assassinated prematurely. When Jesus finally tells a parable that needs no explanation, the temple elites plot to arrest and murder Jesus. With this parable, the cat is out of the bag. And so the first perspective you need for understanding the full meaning of this parable is to see Jesus' use of parables and to see how this parable goes against the tendency. The second perspective you need to understand the full meaning of this parable is to pay attention to the specifics of the parable. The parable of the vineyard is a story about an owner of a vineyard and the tenants who work it. In due season, the owner sends his servants to collect some of the fruit. Notice the abuse of the servants becomes progressively worse. So verse 3, the first servant is beaten and sent away. Verse 4, the second servant is struck on the head and treated shamefully. Verse 5, the next servant is killed. After the servants fail to collect the fruit, the owner then sends his son. And he's identified as the beloved son. And beloved son is an idiom. It means only son. And so the owner of the vineyard sends his beloved son. And this recalls the voice from heaven, identifying Jesus as my beloved son. We hear this voice at Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration. And so the owner sends the son. The son is on a different level from the servants. We're told in verse 7 that the son is the heir. The owner sends him because he assumes that the tenants will respect him. And the tenants know that the son is the heir, and they think if they kill him, they will take sole ownership of the vineyard, we're told in verse 7. After they assassinate the son, they throw his body outside, in verse 8, and presumably leave him there unburied. To refuse to bury a corpse is an incredible offense in the Jewish world. And then verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, the owner sets out to exact justice. He will destroy the tenants who killed his servants and son. But not only that, the Lord of the vineyard will give the vineyard to others. 
Although the true heir is rejected and killed, the inheritance still belongs to him and it belongs to his people, to his community. The block of stone that the builders discarded becomes the cornerstone of a new structure, a new temple. And so the first perspective you need to understand the full meaning of this parable is Jesus' use of parables. Second, you need to see the specifics of the parable. And third, you need to appreciate the vineyard theme of the parable. See, Jesus doesn't just pull this vineyard theme out of thin air. The vineyard is a common theme in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the vine, or the vineyard, is an image of Israel and its relationship to Yahweh. And this specific parable in Mark chapter 12 echoes the language of Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 5 is an allegory explicitly drawn out to show God's disappointment with His people. And it uses the vineyard theme. But there are some differences between Isaiah 5 and Jesus' parable in Mark 12. For example, in Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard fails, whereas in Mark chapter 12, the tenants fail. In Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard is abandoned and devastated, but in Mark chapter 12, the vineyard is entrusted to new tenants. In Isaiah chapter 5, the sum message is this message of unrelieved disaster. But in Mark chapter 12, the message is that of a new beginning, but only after the old regime has been judged. But Isaiah chapter 5 is not the only vineyard language in the Old Testament. Many other Old Testament passages use this vineyard image. For example, Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 21. Yet I planted you a choice vine holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Again, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 10. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. So you see there in Jer Jeremiah, the vineyard theme is one where the vineyard is planted, but then eventually it is destroyed. And so in Jesus' parable in Mark chapter 12, judgment is coming for the existing regime. Judgment is coming for those who have destroyed the vineyard. And judgment is coming specifically for the Pharisees because they are ignoring God's beloved son. And notice in the parable, the tenants first kill the owner's servants. So what's going on there? What is, what is being alluded to there with the servants in the parable? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel ignored and killed God's servants. They were called prophets. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25 and 26, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear. So God sends his prophets to Israel, and they do not listen to them. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 23, They took Uriah, the prophet, and struck him down with the sword and dumped his body. So God sends his prophets, they do not listen to them, and they kill them. 
Second Chronicles 36, verse 15, The Lord sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people, but they kept mocking the messengers of God. So God sends His prophets, they don't listen to them, they kill them, and they mock them. Still further, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26, They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. So God sends the prophets. This is the pattern in the Old Testament for over a thousand years. God sends the prophets. They don't listen to them. They kill them. They mock them. They kill them. And that's not all. Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, was stoned in 2 Chronicles 24. And Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks in Jeremiah chapter 20. And legend is that other prophets were killed, including Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Habakkuk. You see, Jesus' parable is documenting all of this history. Jesus' parable is saying that the Pharisees now are ignoring God by ignoring God's prophet, just like God's people in the past ignored the prophets. And notice in the parable, the tenants know that after they've killed the servants, that now in verse 7, they know they're killing the heir. They know they're killing the son. And they still do it. They take the son and kill him. And so this uh, this parable spans from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God previously sent prophets. For over a thousand years, He sent His servants, He sent the prophets to Israel. Now, God sends His Son. When the people in the Old Testament killed God's prophets, they killed God's servant. But now, they're killing God's beloved Son. And so, what will happen when they kill the Son? Well, God will remove them from their position and give the vineyard to someone else. So notice what, what he says in verse 10. Mark chapter 12, verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, you probably notice Jesus there is quoting the Old Testament. What's he quoting? Well, this is Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is quoted all throughout the New Testament. Psalm 118 is one of those crucial passages for establishing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we see it, for example, the centerpiece of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, where Peter interprets the substance of Psalm 118. And here's Peter's interpretation. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10, Peter tells us that the stone is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, the builders are the corrupt rulers of Israel. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10, Peter tells us that the rejection of the stone is the crucifixion of Jesus. Still, in Acts chapter 4, verse 10, Peter tells us that the placement of the cornerstone is the resurrection of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter tells us that the implication of all of this, the implication of Christ, the cornerstone, is that there is salvation in no other. There is no longer salvation in the temple of the Old Testament. Now there's salvation in the new temple, Jesus Christ. In other words, as Jesus now quotes Psalm 118 in this parable, Jesus is warning them that to reject Jesus is to reject God. Jesus is here as the new 
cornerstone of the new temple. But the leaders have thrown the cornerstone out. That's what you see in verse 8. They kill him outside the city and take him outside the city. And so the leaders throw the cornerstone out. And so that means that the new temple will be built elsewhere. The new people of God will be built elsewhere away from the old temple. And so what you see in this parable is an explanation not just of the long history of Israel and how they have rejected the patience and grace of the Lord, but now, having rejected the Lord's Messiah, the old temple, the old center of worship is destroyed. And God's going to build a new temple. And in this new temple, this new people of God, Jesus Christ, is the cornerstone. And so think about the point Jesus is making from the broader redemptive historical level. Again, this parable is, in some sense, interpreting the entire Old Testament for us. It is set against the backdrop of the larger story of God's ongoing relationship with Israel. And we see this mentioned in Isaiah chapter 65. Remember God's warning in Isaiah 65. He says, All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. In other words, for over a thousand years, in God's mercy, in God's patience, He's given them forgiveness. He's welcomed the people back after they have resisted Him. For over a thousand years, God has held out His hands to this obstinate people. And remember, God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. This is what Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says. So that means that God's kindness shown to Israel for over a thousand years was meant to lead them to repentance. And yet, what did they do? They killed his servants, they killed his prophets, they ignored them, they mocked them. They continued down their stubborn path. And what happens when continual rebellion persists? Well, Isaiah chapter 65 verse 7 tells us that continual rebellion will eventually be met with certain judgment. But Isaiah 65 goes on to say that God will not destroy all Israel. A remnant will be saved. This is Isaiah 65, 8 through 16. A remnant will be saved. So connect that, connect Isaiah 65 to Jesus' parable of the vineyard, where the parable is not destroyed, but is given to others. The vineyard is given to those who put their trust and loyalty in Jesus Christ. A new temple is built outside the city. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and He is building His new people of God. And salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, not in the old temple anymore, not in the sacrifices anymore, but in Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice, the Son of God, the beloved Son, the Lamb of God. And so not only is this parable explaining the history of God's people in the Old Testament and the building of a new people, a new temple. This parable also has wisdom for those new people of God. This parable gives us wisdom for the new people of God to live by. There's at least five points of wisdom from this parable I want you to consider as the new people of God. First, this parable says something about the foolish hubris of scoffers. Scoffers exist in every age and every walk of life. 
There are those, young and old, there are those in ancient times and in modern times who think that they can seize control of everything in their lives and push God out of the picture. This is much of what Pastor Matt was talking about during his exhortation. Just like the tenants thought that they would own the vineyard once they killed the sun, so too people think they can control their universe by erasing God. And what are we doing when we do this? Well, we are declaring that this is our vineyard, just like they're doing in the parable. But that's not the case. The path to faithfulness is remembering that we are not Lord of the vineyard. We are servants in the Lord's vineyard. And what we see in this parable is the sin of covetousness. They want to kill the heir so that they can seize control of the vineyard. Well, it's the sin of covetousness to greedily grab more than your share of everything. The second thing we learn from this parable is that this parable says something about the danger of power going to your head. It's easy to read this passage and equate the tenants, who are the Pharisees, to power-hungry politicians in Washington, D.C. And that wouldn't be wrong. But within all of us, it can happen that power goes to your head. It can happen to a ruler or a citizen. It can happen to a boss or an employee. And it certainly happens to middle management a lot. And it can also happen to a young Christian husband. Take the instance of a young Christian husband where power has gone to his head. He and his wife both faithfully read the Bible. They both read and see the principle of male headship for the marriage. But when power goes to the husband's head, he starts demanding things that no wise man would demand. He insists on his way apart from the counsel of his wife. His view of headship is something that destroys those he is leading rather than leading them. And you know power has gone to the head of the young husband when he acts like a taskmaster and forces his will on petty things just because he thinks he can. And we have to understand that power can go to, yes, it can go to the head of politicians in Washington, D.C., but power can go to the head of all of us. Power can go to the head of a young Christian husband. And the biblical idea of male headship is not calling on women to be a doormat, nor is it calling on men to be dictators, nor is it calling on men to demand and demand and to, to, and to demand. The idea is these are roles that are fulfilled in harmony. And so husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, which means to the point of death. You love your wife sacrificially. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And in the parable of the vineyard, as we see, power goes to the head of the Pharisees, and they kill the true heir in order to keep their power. This triggers the vineyard owner to strike in judgment against the vineyard workers. Notice that pattern. Notice how God responds to those to whom power has gone to their head. Third, this parable says something about the center of meaning. Jesus is warning that to reject the cornerstone, to reject Jesus Christ, the beloved Son, is to reject God. 
Jesus comes as the new cornerstone of the new temple. They say they don't want this temple that comes with Jesus Christ. And so they throw the cornerstone out. The temple is built elsewhere. The new people of God is built elsewhere. And this reminds us that all things in the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. In other words, the apex moment of the world is Jesus' death and resurrection. Because the Pharisees reject Jesus, it's, in, it's the end of an old world. God's judgment is coming down upon the old world, upon the temple. And He's now building a new world. And this new world is built upon Jesus Christ. And so what is the center of meaning? What is the center of purpose for this new world? Well, the world of meaning emanates from Jesus' death and resurrection. You could say that the Pharisees' problem is they fail to understand what the center of meaning is. They fail to understand that the center of meaning is Jesus Christ. And the modern world also fails to understand the center of meaning. The modern person is told that the world of meaning emanates from the self, from each individual self. And so, we're obsessed with ourselves. And this is why people today live with this inescapable sense of emptiness. It's superficiality. Why is it superficiality? Well, modern superficiality is when you think you're at the center of the world. So modern superficiality is when you stare at the mirror way too long. Modern superficiality is when you are at the center of the world. That's why you're taking so many selfies of yourself, because you're at the center of your world. But you have to understand that just like the Pharisees, when they reject that Jesus is the center of meaning, so too when you reject that Jesus is at the center of meaning, that you are going to feel empty. And so, we have this inescapable sense of emptiness in the modern world, this superficiality. And it's superficial because you're at the center rather than the king of creation being at the center. What is this emptiness? Well, it's the sense that things have gone awry. It's the crushing burden of guilt for which there's no relief. It's the pain that won't go away. An ache deep within for which there are no words to express it. It's the longing for friendship for the sense of belonging. And the problem of the modern world is that people interpret the meaning of these needs as if they emanate from and can be relieved by the sovereign self. And so they ache and they feel and they long with this sense of emptiness, with this superficiality. And how do they try to solve it? Another selfie. How do they try to solve it? They keep themselves at the center, just like the Pharisees kept themselves at the center and rejected Christ. But God does not want you to interpret the meaning of those needs through yourself. Christ wants you to surrender your self-centeredness and recognize that the vineyard is not yours, it's His. This is a world in which Jesus Christ is at the center. And when you live in such a way that Jesus Christ is at the center, you feel full. You feel satisfied. But when you live in such a way where you are at the center, you feel empty. You feel fake. You feel superficial. And so there's a reversal needed 
a reversal where we put Jesus Christ at the center rather than ourselves. And this is something the Pharisees couldn't grasp. They couldn't grasp the transposition of loyalties from themselves to God. They couldn't grasp the acceptance that God is not a commodity for consumption to build their wealth and their power. They couldn't grasp the realization that God meets us on the terms that He establishes. Another way to say all this is to say that you are not the main character of history. And this is good news. This is the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you are not the main character of history, that Jesus Christ is the main character of history. Why is that good news? Why is it good news that you're not the main character of history? Well, if you are the central character, then that means that those around you are there for you to use them. And so you're at the center of the world, and that means everyone else around you is there for you to use them. And so how do you look at people? Well, what can I get out of you? What can you give me? How can I turn this situation so that you serve me, so that you inflate my ego, so that you praise me, so that you give me what I'm wanting? That's what the world looks like when you're at the center. And we've seen what that world looks like. That is a pathetic and miserable world. When you are at the center of the world, you are miserable. And so it's really good news that you're not at the center of the world. It's really good news that Jesus Christ is at the center of the world because when Jesus Christ is the central character, then those around you are there for you to love, for you to serve, and to do so following after the pattern of Jesus Christ. And here's the irony. When you put yourself at the center of the world, you feel empty. But when you put Jesus Christ at the center of the world, you feel full. You feel satisfied. And so this parable says something about the foolish hubris of scoffers. It says something about the danger of power going to your head. It says something about the center of meaning. Fourth, this parable says something about the fruit produced in healthy Christian community. This story is more against Israel's leaders than the people of Israel. The leaders have turned the temple into a personal cash cow. And Jesus threatens their sweet deal. And so they want to kill Jesus. And the generalized application of this biblical typology is that any group in power that obstructs the fruitfulness of God's vineyard plays the part of the evil tenants in the vineyard. Now, as you apply that typology, be careful before you automatically identify others as the guilty party. This story has a boomerang effect because you think it belongs for those people. You think it's heading towards those people and then suddenly it comes right back to you. And as we saw with the cursed fig tree, the leaders of Israel bore no fruit. And that's why that temple is being destroyed and God's building a new temple. And this new temple needs to bear the fruit of God. And so that means the question we must ask as the new temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ is, what fruit does God require of us today as the new people of God? And to answer that question, we need to look no further than this passage. We need to look no further than what precedes and follows the parable. He tells us exactly what fruit the people of God are expected to produce. For example... Mark chapter 11, verse 17, our place of worship must be a house of prayer. 
So what kind of fruit should the new people of God have built on the cornerstone of Christ? We should be a people of prayer. Mark chapter 11, verse 25, our community is to be a place of forgiveness. So the fruit of Jesus Christ is we're a people of prayer and we are a forgiving people. What other kind of fruit should the new people of God produce? Mark chapter 12, verse 17, we are to render to God what belongs to God. Mark chapter 12, verse 30, we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mark chapter 12, verse 31, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the fruit that should come with the new people of God. The old temple was destroyed because they didn't produce the right fruit. So we better be careful to make sure we're aiming for and striving for and producing the right fruit. And all of those things, those five things I just mentioned, are built around the sun, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 12, verse 10. In other words, those things become good fruit when they're built off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because the Pharisees didn't produce these fruits that they receive the judgment of God. And fifth and finally, as we close, this parable says something about the reward of faith in Christ, the cornerstone. You see, the entire movement of the parable is they're rejecting Christ, and they have been rejecting Christ for over a thousand years, and so destruction is coming upon them. And so the flip side of that is, don't be like that. Instead, have faith in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And there is a particular reward for those who trust in Christ, the cornerstone. What is the reward? Well, we see this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, which is also quoting Psalm 118. And this is what Hebrews 13, 6 says. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is quoting Psalm 118. And so, when Christ is your cornerstone, what is the reward? There is nothing man can do to you. You say... Ah, uh, that's not true. When I follow Christ faithfully, I might lose my job. But Jesus Christ says to you, I am your helper. There is nothing man can do to you. You say, ah, but the enemy has bullets. Well, Psalm 118 says, yes, but the cornerstone has a bulletproof car for you to ride in. And so for those who reject the stone, the stone is a wrecking ball. For those who receive the stone, the stone is a helper in time of need. Let's close by praying together. Christ our Lord, you are the one who was dead, but now lives forevermore. Almighty High Priest, you are indeed a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Through your Spirit, bless us with the full fruit of our salvation that comes by your blood. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.